Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, please, as we continue our way through the text. We come now to the encounter of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests, the temple courtiers who are responsible with leading Israel in the worship of the one true God, their encounter with the apostles following the miraculous healing of the lame man in which Peter encountered this fellow and he's asking for alms and he asks him to give him some money and Peter's response is silver and gold have I none but what I have I freely give in the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk. And Peter finds himself here like so many of us caught up in words tangled in lies But despite the response of this world, nothing can cover the truth that Jesus takes our brokenness aside and he makes it beautiful. Amen, First Baptist Church. This morning, before we get to the word, I want to reread a passage for you that will be our focus this morning, Peter's response to the inquiry. I want you to join with me here. We're going to just read this, and then as is our custom, we will ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text on the page before us to open our minds to understand what's being said and to help us to believe and to walk by faith. I want you to pick it up with me in verse 8, Acts 4, 8. Peter's response, uh, Annas has posed the question, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, and Peter responds in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, And elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, let it be known to all of you. Oh, sorry, I missed a line. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom You crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you for Peter's clarity. Lord, in a day such as ours in which there are competing ideas of where true happiness can be found and where forgiveness can be granted, where our souls can be saved, Lord, there are many, many ideas that are out there. Ours is a day, Lord, in which we repeatedly affirm truth to be plural, to be many, when your word calls us time and again to understand that truth is one, it is singular, and it is absolute. Father, we know that Jesus is the truth, and we thank you for Peter's clarity in this sermon in which he proclaimed the name of Jesus as the only name in distinction to other names, such as Allah or Muhammad such as the teachings of Confucius, Taoism, Taoism, Sikhism. Lord, we recognize nuggets of truth 
in many of these other systems of religion, but we recognize them as being distortions of the truth. Father, help your people to know today, once again, remind us that there is one name under heaven and there is salvation nowhere else besides in your Son, in Jesus Christ. We pray that you do that this morning through your word and by your spirit. For it is in his name that we ask. Amen. I think my first experience with real faith came when I was maybe four or five years old. I can't remember exactly how old I was. My father was uh, building our house at the time. And uh, the back deck was uh, sort of a series of beams and two-by-fours. There weren't any actual decking laid down across it. And as I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences, me and my brothers were hopping and skipping across this deck off of the back where the back porch was going to be. And in the process, I slid across one beam, and I secured a pretty nasty sliver. That is not on purpose. Do I need to pull this away from my face a little bit? Okay, and I secured, secured, there we go, a nasty sliver, oh, it's still back, in my foot. And so my mom says, don't worry, I can take care of it, which I believed. She brought me inside, it's bleeding, the thing is dug in real deep. It's maybe an inch, an inch and a half long, nasty thing, it's dug in deep. She says, I can get this out for you. I trust my mom. I love my mom. All of you, you have the same experience. Mom can make it better. She goes to the sewing kit. I'd never seen this before. Normally, she goes for the first aid kit. So I'm a little bit confused. She comes back with a needle. Now, in that moment, whatever else is about to happen, I've seen what she does with that needle, and I do not trust that this is going to end well for me, okay? And it's often that way in life. Now, you've obviously had a mom or someone you love dig a a splinter out of your foot as well. And, of course, there is a process in which we have to go through a process in which things will get worse before they can get better. We see it inherently as counterintuitive, counterproductive. Surely, digging through my skin with a needle is not going to actually help this feel better. That's our initial thought. And this is often the case. The mountain climber stranded on the side of the mountain who can't really see his way to get down is told by a fellow climber alongside of him that he needs to reach up higher and climb a little further, in which he is in that moment fearful of his heights. He has to choose to surrender his judgment and his confidence to the one next to him to do what seems counterintuitive when all he wants to do is get down. He's being told he has to reach up a little further. And we've all encountered this. We see here in the book of Acts two groups of people competing for the attention and the affections of Jerusalem. On the one side, you have the temple courtiers, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the high priests, all of these people that are responsible for the worship of Israel that have been charged with this responsibility ostensibly by God. They're the people you've always known. They're the people you've always trusted. They're familiar. The things that they teach you've heard your whole life. The doctrines they espouse you are well acquainted with. And on the other side, you have unlettered, uneducated fishermen from Galilee, rednecks from a faraway town, preaching a name of a man who was murdered only a few weeks prior. But there's a man who's been healed. 
This is a miracle which cannot be denied. There is a lame man who has been lame his whole life, whom we all know, whom we've all seen walking past him as we go into the temple year after year. This man has always been lame. He has always been broken. And yet, by the name of Christ, which these fishermen preach, this man has been made well. And now the confrontation begins. Whom will we believe? Which witness, which story makes the most sense? Acts chapter 4, verse 1 It says, they were speaking to the people. Peter is continuing to preach this sermon. And the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They're irritated because they thought they were done with this guy. They thought they had successfully crucified him. They thought he was buried and gone. And yet here is Peter, along with his cohorts, and they are proclaiming, no, we're not done with this guy. He is done with defeating sin. That's what actually took place on the cross. And they are preaching that in Christ, if you would hope in him, as counterintuitive as it might seem, if you would surrender to him and place your faith in him, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be reconciled to God and you can count on the promise of resurrection. So they're irritated, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, they have entered into what is commonly referred to as the Minsky-Pulaski problem. Minsky-Pulaski, I'm sure some of you have heard of this before. By arresting Peter and his companions, they have already given support to their case, to what Peter and his companions are saying. During uh, the revolution in the 1920s in Russia, there was a problem that occurred from time to time, and it was quite common in rural Russia in which the Soviet leadership, it wasn't the Soviets at the time, in which the communist leadership would come and say, comrades, we need to nationalize the farms. We need to do this in order to increase the output of grain. So we're going to take all of your farms over. They're going to be placed under government control. You're going to do what we say, and we're going to make more food that way. And from time to time, there would be a political operative that would be, that would be sent. It would be sent out by the government, and he would come to the farms, and he would begin to speak to them, and he would say, comrades, last year we did this, and in the last year we have increased our grain production by 100%. And here's where the Minsky-Pulaski problem would come in. Invariably, as he's speaking to this rural village of farmers, one farmer, one small man in the back would stand up, and he'd say, excuse me, comrade. And the comrade would say to him, yes, and what is your name? He'd say, I'm Minsky. And he'd say, okay, Minsky, what's your question? He says, you say to me that we are increasing wheat production by 100%. I just want to know, where is all that wheat going? Because we're not seeing it. And of course, the comrade would bumble through an answer. It would be ultimately insufficient. And he'd come back the next year, and he'd report the same thing. Comrades, in the last year, we've increased wheat production 200%. And Minsky would stand up and say, excuse me. And he'd say, what's your name? He'd say, I'm Minsky. Say, oh no, Minsky again. Comrade, where did all that wheat go to? Because we don't see any of that wheat. And we're not seeing it mass produced gloriously here. And of course, the comrade would bumble through his answer. And then on the third year, he'd come back and he'd say, Comrades, guess what? We have increased wheat production 300%. And a fellow would stand up and he'd say, Oh, with surprise, Minsky? To which the man would say, No. I'm Pulaski, and I have a question. What happened to Minsky? (laughs) 
Minsky disappeared. There is no more Minsky. That's the story that is told amongst Soviet high leadership. Be cautious of the Minsky-Pulaski problem. We might as well just call it the Peter and John problem. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've encountered Peter and John. They've worked a miracle, and their response is to throw these guys into prison. For what? For working a miracle, for healing a man that we all have seen has been lame from the time that he was born. And their response to their working of this miracle and preaching the name of Jesus is to say, well, we don't like it. This goes against what we've been trying to do these last several weeks. Let's throw them in jail. Enter the Minsky-Pulaski problem by retaliating in such a way, by trying to suppress all dissent, by trying to do away with all opposition, you actually give credence to the opposing viewpoint. You support the opposition. And inevitably, that's what they have done here. The next morning, they call them out. It says, well, before I go on, it says they arrested them, they put them into custody, but look at what happens. Verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed. Despite their efforts of intimidation and arrest, the Spirit was working, the Word of God was proclaimed, and if anything, the hostile opposition only further cemented the point that Peter was making, which is that it is by the name of Jesus that any of us can be saved, a name which these guys don't like. So 5,000 men come to believe. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So they're going to call them in for an interrogation. They've got all the bigwigs there. That's what you need to know. They've got everybody who's of any significance gathered around, and they're going to have a word. Verse 7, here's the question they asked. When they set them in their midst, they inquired, number one, by what power? By what power did you do this? Number two, or by what name did you do this? Now, the way that this question is posed, we shouldn't necessarily see this as two separate questions. They're quite interrelated. By what name or by what power did you do this? A person's name in this day and age confers a certain authority. And that authority enables them to act with a certain degree of power. Name and power go hand in hand. In 1959, there was a governor of the state of Louisiana by the name of Earl Long. And Earl Long stood up before the state assembly there in Louisiana to pontificate on why he should be allowed to hold office for an unprecedented third term as governor. The political opposition didn't care much for this pontification, and those who were watching live, not many in 1959, but those who were watching live that particular day in 1959 saw something that they had never seen before. Police officers and men in white coats rushed in, seized Governor Earl Long, and put him under arrest, took him to a mental hospital, and declared him mentally unstable and unfit to be governor of Louisiana. This was a trick that had been orchestrated by his political opponents, and so he was placed into custody. Now, here's the problem. He's the governor of Louisiana. Just hold on to that thought for a moment. Upon arriving there at Southeastern Louisiana Hospital in Mandeville in Louisiana, he demanded his phone call, which he was entitled to. And the first call he made was to his chief of staff. Governor Long calls his chief of staff, and he said, Sir, do I have the authority to fire the director of the hospital because the director of the hospital won't let me out. Chief of staff said, hang, hang, hold the line for just a second, let me check. 
He comes back, he says, no, you don't as governor have the power to directly intervene in the administration of a hospital. However, you do have the power to replace the state director of all hospitals, and the state director of all hospitals, he can replace the administrator of the local hospital. So the governor said, thanks, that's all I need to know. He hung up the phone. Shortly thereafter, he was interviewed by Dr. Charles Belcher, who was the head of the uh, Southeastern Louisiana Hospital, who was of the different, a differing political party than Governor Earl Long. And Governor Long said, Dr. Belcher, I demand that you let me go right this instant. To which Dr. Belcher said, Sir, I'm sorry, I can't do that. You have been found mentally unfit to hold office, and it is my sworn duty before the people of Louisiana to keep you under lock and key. To which Governor Earl Long said, do you know who I am? In biblical terms, we might put it this way. Do you understand what my name is? Do you understand the office that I hold? Do you understand the power that I have? To which Dr. Belcher said, yes, sir, I do, and it is my sworn duty to hold you under lock and key. He says, Governor, I know you cannot fire me. I'm a medical professional. Governor Long says, okay. He calls up the state director of hospitals for the state of Louisiana, Jesse Bankston. Mr. Bankston, I demand that you replace Dr. Charles Belcher right now with someone who will let me go. To which Mr. Bankston said, sir, I cannot do this. This is a medical, this is a medical decision. This is in the best interests of the people of Louisiana. To which Governor Erlong said, Mr. Bankston, you're fired. Pack your things. Hung up the phone, called his chief of staff, get me a new state director of hospitals who will fire Dr. Charles Belcher. 30 minutes later, a new man was named. That afternoon, Dr. Charles Belcher was fired. And by evening time, Governor Earl Long walked out of Southeastern Medical Hospital, Mandeville, Louisiana. Classic mistake that they made was thinking that as governor, he did not have power when in point of fact, he did. Now, these doctors should have asked a better question. What will happen to me if I defy the governor's order? That should have been a thought that crossed their mind. It's definitely a thought that is crossing the mind of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Notice their question. They say to him, by what power, notice the way that they put that word first, by what power or by what name do you do these things? Now, we're tempted to just gloss over this and see this as a, just a sort of a repetitious question. They are interrelated, but you need to understand they want absolute clarity, and Peter is happy to give it to him. Peter could have just as easily have said, well, by the power of God, which is true enough. They would have said, okay, go on your way. Be blessed and happy and continue doing the work that you're doing. But as Jesus has commissioned them, it isn't sufficient for them simply to say, by the power of God. You see, a name has been given and they asked for that name. And so Peter's response is not only to say, 
the name of God, but to say the name of Jesus. They say, by what power? By what name? And you'll notice his response. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, everybody, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos, Jesus, Yeshua, God is salvation, and Christ, the Greek translation of the word Messiah, which is the anointed one, the holy one, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. He says, you want to know the name and the power by which we do these things? It is Jesus. It is the one who is the Christ. And yes, it's that guy from Nazareth. He has a name. He has an office. And in case you're still confused, he has a home address. We'll give it all to you. Here it is. He says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which there's no doubt over what comes next, the guy whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, it is by him that this man is standing before you well. He names the name. And now he's going to respond to any potential objections which may present themselves in the religious establishment's mind. He says in verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He makes two statements. Number one, you want to know the name? You want to know the power? Here's the name. Here's the identity. Here's the one we do this by. Number two, you want to know who this guy is? We'll tell you who he is. He's the cornerstone. He is the foundation. This is the problem that they're having. This is the problem that we're having. This isn't just a first century problem. This is a 21st century problem. We have before us, revealed to us, by God, a name which we can surrender to, a person which we can place our faith in. We like that. That sounds good, but we want to add things to it. We want to put a little bit extra on top of it. And the first thing that Peter says is he is the stone, the cornerstone, which has been rejected by the builders. Now, when you're building a house, the first thing you do is you lay a foundation. And that is absolutely in Peter's mind. And that is absolutely in the Pharisee's mind. Say, so how do you know that, Pastor? Again, familiarity with the scriptures. It's first mentioned in the book of Job, which many scholars are quite certain is probably the first book of the Bible that was ever written. Job and his friends go back and forth arguing over why all of these bad things are happening to Job. And finally, God comes and he speaks. And his statement is to Job, who is this that darkens counsel using words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you can make it known to me. Ooh, those are words which if any of us were to hear the Lord speak to us, ought to terrify us. You think you've got it all figured out? Why don't you, creature, explain to me, creator, how it's supposed to go? Dripping with sarcasm, no doubt. Where were you 
when I laid the foundation of the earth. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, their idea of foundation is probably a little bit primitive. Surely we've come a long way since then with architectural advances and a better understanding of all the forces that are work in the building of a house. Remember, as far as we know, Job was probably the first book of the Bible that was ever written. It goes back over 3,000 years. Look at what God says. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who was it that determined its measurements or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? Now, what God is saying to Job there, and again, this is poetic imagery talking about the foundation of the earth, but the way that he uses this poetic imagery gives us a clear indication that as far back as the days of Job, they understood that the foundation of a house had to go down deep onto something that was solid. They also understood that if you were going to lay this foundation square, if it was going to be plumb, you would need a really solid cornerstone from which to work off of. That's how it worked in ancient architect, architectural engineering and building. Now, God says this to Job. It's our first reference to the fact that there is something sure, there is something certain upon which houses are to be built, upon which we are supposed to stand. But this same image is picked up in Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, this is through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am the one who has laid a, as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure, or you might translate that word, of a certain foundation. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. Now, if you're the religious establishment and you say to Peter, okay, what's the deal? By what power or by, by what name are you doing this? And your job as the leader of Israel, responsible for leading the nation in worship, is to know the Old Testament. And Peter says to you, you want to know by what name and what power we do this? We do this by the Messiah, the one that was prophesied. He is the cornerstone. You already know what the way the rest of that verse goes. The one that was rejected by the builders. This is the one that God has chosen. What an indictment. David, writing in the Psalms, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, says in Psalm 118, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. He wants to go home to heaven. He understands there's a barrier. He's pleading in this Psalm, open the gates, let me in. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. He's talking about something now. This is the gate of the Lord. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You have David crying out for salvation. You have the prophet Isaiah warning a rebellious nation. This is how salvation is going to come. You have Peter talking to the Pharisees, and they're saying, why are you doing this? They've already indicated their irritation. They've already locked them up into prison. And Peter drives home the Minsky-Pulaski problem. You think you've got control of the situation. 
you think you know what you're doing. But the reality is, even as you're taking steps to try to silence us, even as you took steps to try to reject Christ in all of these things, you're only proving the point that Jesus is the Messiah, that his name is the name by which we can be saved. 5,000 were saved the day before. How many more do you think are going to be convinced at this trial? There's a couple of things I want you to notice first. It is the name of Christ, and it is the office of Christ. The two are together. They are indivisible, but they are distinct. God has appointed one way by which any of us can be forgiven. He has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to atone for our sins. What this means is that you and I have all broken the law. We have all sinned against God. We are sinners caught up and tangled in lies. We are desperately trying to declare ourselves righteous. We are trying in every means possible to justify ourselves, and yet none of it will suffice. And in our quieter moments in which we are really willing to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves, we can acknowledge that despite all of our best efforts, we don't really think we're ever going to be right with God. Our conscience accuses us if it isn't hardened beyond the point of functioning. We know There's a debt to be paid. We also suspect that despite all of our best efforts, we will never pay that debt. A couple of years ago, there was a documentary that came out about Mr. Rogers. Won't you be my neighbor? This documentary detailed his life. And of course, if you're familiar with with Frank Rogers and you understand Mr. Rogers and the whole kids show that he put on for all of those years, you know that he was one of the kindest men that ever lived who had a deep desire to honor children, to treat them as people, to instruct them, to love on them. On his deathbed, it is recorded in that particular documentary that he looks at his wife as his health is failing. Of course, you're aware that uh, Mr. Rogers was uh, a Presbyterian, faithful, and actually an ordained minister in the Presbyterian church. But on his deathbed, he posed the question, He said to his wife, am I a sheep? There's a reference to Matthew in which Jesus says to the disciples on the day of judgment, I will separate the sheep from the goats. And and Matthew talks about how Jesus goes on to say that the sheep are the ones that do these things. They visit those who are in prison. They clothe the naked. They feed the hungry. They they give water to the thirsty. Whereas the goats, the ones who are not going to enter into eternal life, they're the ones that don't do those things. And there he is, Frank Rogers. Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor on his deathbed questioning whether or not he's sheep enough to get into heaven? Now, I don't know whether he was saved or not. I don't know whether or not his understanding of the gospel was sound or not. I can't speak one way or the other to Mr. Rogers. You want to know how you can be sheep enough to go to heaven? You believe in the name of Jesus Christ. You hope in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can be rest assured that at the end of the day, If Christ has you, you will never fall. But it does require a surrender. And notice this carefully. 
It requires a surrender to whom Jesus is. It's very, very common and very, very chic for people who want to portray themselves as tolerant and loving to say that all of the religions of the world are all teaching basically the same thing. There's a metaphor that's even employed. You see, what it is is we're all a bunch of blind men and we're all striving after something. And religion or God or the divine, however it's portrayed, is likened to a giant elephant. And one guy goes up, blind guy, and he grabs the trunk and he's feeling the trunk and he says, God is like a long snake. You know, it's this powerful sort of python moving back and forth. It's thick, but it's got muscle and it wiggles this way and that. And of course, another blind man goes up to the rear of the elephant and grabs the elephant's tail and says, yes, God is like a snake, but he's not muscular and powerful. He's more slender and narrow. I don't know what you're talking about. And then, of course, another blind man goes up and he grabs the, the elephant's leg and he says, no, 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 it's like a tree trunk. God is like a tree trunk. And another blind man, of course, you've heard the, the analogy, puts his hand up and he puts his hands on the side of the elephant and he says, no, God is like a giant wall. Okay? And this analogy is employed to say that essentially all religions are teaching the same thing, calling it by different names. They're all touching upon the same truth. Look at what Peter says here. Look carefully now. He says at the end of his statement, verse 11, this Jesus, pick it up in verse 10, he says, let it be known to you that by the name of Jesus, he wants you to know his name, by the name of Jesus Christ, this man has been healed. That's what he says in verse 11. This Jesus, he repeats it, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, by the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven. Now, the first part of that, when he says he's the cornerstone, this is it, this is the rock, he's not saying, look, there are various religions out there that can get you home. There's different faiths that you can hold to that will square you with God. He's saying, no, there's one faith, to which the rebuttal to that is often, okay, one faith, but what if we're all believing sort of the same thing and we're just calling it by different names? Is that possible? To which Peter then answers us, no, it's not, because the one faith comes with one name and that one name is Jesus Christ. And this is very crucial to us. We need to understand that this is the only name under heaven that we've been given. Why? Because God seeks the glorification of his son. Because God wants you to know him. Do you know how the elephant analogy breaks down into absurdity? You got all these blind men touching different parts of the elephant, saying it's like different things. At the end of the day, what we're seeing in that analogy is what all the other world religions are essentially all about. And that's why it works for all of them except for Christianity. In that analogy, blind men must strive after God. They must touch after him and try to find their way to him. But God cannot be found by any of us. God is only found when he reveals himself to us. The Christian response to the elephant analogy is to say that you are a bunch of wackos grabbing after an elephant. Meanwhile, Jesus is standing over to the side, a real person with a real name saying, if you would know God, here I am. You cannot take the elephant out for a cup of coffee. You will never be able to look the elephant in the eyes and have the elephant look you in your eyes and say, I love you and I'm going to die for you. No elephant has ever said such a thing. 
And of course, I know that it's an analogy. But the point of the analogy is to say that we all can find our way to God if we try. And as we're trying, we're all touching on the same thing. We are blind. We're so blind that we'll buy into an analogy about an elephant and think that somehow that's supposed to teach us something meaningful about God. When Jesus says, here I am, here's my name, here's my office, and here's my home address. The God of the Bible is fundamentally different in every respect from every other religion because he comes to us. We can never find him, but we don't have to. He loves us. And so he makes it his purpose. He makes it his plan to come to us. And indeed, having died for us, he now raises up a group of apostles and through them a church that will say, no one is ever going to find their way to God. We must go the way that he has come. And we must proclaim that good news to them. There is a real God in heaven. And he has revealed a name to us, the only name by which any of us can ever be saved. And I want you to, as we close this morning, I want you to rest on this last point. Peter says there is no other name by which we can be saved. This is it. This is the foundation. This is the cornerstone. How incredibly freeing is that? To search, to find, and to hold on to it. And to know that in having found Christ, in Christ having found you, you don't need to search any further. We look at the God's that rule over our present day. Gods like Oprah or RRSPs or uh, nice houses. We tell ourselves, if I get a good education, then I'll be set for life. Or if I get a good job, then I'll be taken care of. We look at all these different gods. And we look at other gods. Gods like Allah, his prophet Muhammad. We see the clash going on over in the Middle East. We understand that there are theological reasons that are driving these conflicts. And we find, in many respects, Allah is a stronger God than Oprah. Here's what the Western world should be realizing. We see it evident in our literature. We see it evident in our music. Even in the things that we're trying to sell each other, it's clear that we are unhappy. You look at the great literature of the philosophers. John Paul Sartre, French existentialist philosopher, wrote... We are, at the end of the day, looking at morality, looking at human existence. He comes to this conclusion. We are nothing but hollow bubbles floating around on a sea of nothingness. George Bernard Shaw, greatest line. I love it. He says at the end of his consideration of humanity, our hearts are nothing more than drums beating our own funeral dirge. You see it in music as well. The greatest music of our day, the one that captures our imagination, that begins to drive us to contemplate. Bono, U2, that famous song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. 
or in the marketing that takes place. Volvo. Finally, a car that will save your soul. This is a true marketing campaign. Five years ago, I wrote it down. I was shocked. I need a Volvo. <laughs> of course I didn't say that. You know why? Because I didn't need a Volvo. I needed Jesus. All these people are writing about the fact that life is empty, that they've looked, they've searched, they have not found, as Bono says, what they're looking for. They're buying stuff in massive quantities. We are racking up credit card debt at an alarming rate. We think that in the things that we own, sooner or later, we'll get that toy, we'll get that gadget, and then we'll be happy. Christmas comes. We get the cool thing under the Christmas tree. By February, it's not so cool anymore. And by June, we're thinking about the next year's Christmas. The cycle repeats. We're not happy, but we can be. First Baptist Church, Peter makes it very clear. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you would know contentment and satisfaction, if you would have pleasure and joy, if you would experience what the Bible calls blessed, You can have it, but it only comes through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we close this morning, our prayer is, Lord, that we would no longer find acceptable analogies and illustrations which have as their goal ultimately to detract from the name of Christ. I pray, Lord, that as First Baptist Church goes from this place, as we seek to proclaim a good news, a message of hope and reconciliation. I pray, Lord, that we would understand that we are to do so with the conviction that there is only one name that you have given, a name which will glorify you, which will do justice to your holiness and your righteousness, and a name which can provide true comfort and reassurance, and a name which ultimately grants us salvation. There's only one place we go. There's only one name we have, and there is only need for that name. Let us cherish that name and uphold that name. And God, we pray you'd help us to proclaim that name to all the earth, even as we close in prayer this morning, in the name, the name of Jesus. Amen.